You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Would you guys stand with me for the reading of the scripture this morning? Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and the scripture this morning will be from Luke chapter 4. And starting in verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you guys pray with me this morning? I know I tricked you. I tricked you. I did it. I did it so fast. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Um, I pray that you would use it, that you would speak to us. Yeah, I pray that you would give us hope and assurance. Thank you that your word is a firm foundation. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now you guys can have a seat. Uh, in the 16th century, there was a guy by the name of William Tyndale. You, you may or may not be familiar with this guy, William Tyndale. He was a professor at Cambridge University, and really, without a doubt, he's one of the great minds of his time and really one of the great minds of Western civilization in general. So he was a linguist and a priest, and so he was fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, so he was able to read the scriptures in their original language, which was really rare for a priest at the time. You see, priests at the time in in the church in England would just read the Mass in Latin, so most priests weren't even actually able to find where the Sermon on the Mount was, or where the Ten Commandments were. They, they read what was set out for them in Latin for that Sunday, and they taught what the Pope told them to teach. Um, but Tyndale wasn't that way, so he, he learned the languages, and he started translating the Bible into English. And after translating, after reading, Tyndale came to two really important conclusions. One, that the Bible should function as the source of authority, not the Pope or even tradition, And two, that every follower of Jesus should be able to read the Bible in their own language, which seems really simple for us. But at the time, it was actually illegal in England to spread the Bible in English. So Tyndale escaped to Germany where the German Reformation was going on at the time, and it's not a for sure thing, but most likely he was under the protection of Martin Luther, another another big reformer at the time. And there he translated the first ever English version of the New Testament. So some, um, there he, uh, he smuggled over 18,000 Bibles across the channel into England, and followers of Jesus would gather in homes, and they would whisper the scriptures together, and, and many people were hearing the Bible for the first time in their own language. 
When King Henry VIII of fame found out an English Bible was being spread, he was enraged. This was taking power away from him and giving it to people. So he bought up about 6,000 copies and had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. Can you imagine burning 6,000 Bibles on the steps of the church? He then passed a new law saying that all Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed upon contact, and anyone found with one was to be put to death. Eventually, he actually sent a spy to Germany to befriend Tyndale. Tyndale fell for the ploy. He was arrested and brought back to England, put on trial. After a year of torture, he would never recant. He would never say he would stop translating the Bible and spreading it across England. And after a year, he was burned at the stake. Witnesses to his execution report that his last words were actually a prayer. And it was, Lord, open the king of England's eye. Eventually, God answered that prayer. In fact, just a few years later, the king recanted. The Bible was translated into English for the first time for all to read legally in England. Uh, some 85% of the King James Bible was cut and copied from Tyndale's Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible like the NIV or the ESV or the New American Standard, a large chunk of that, I don't have an exact percentage, but a large chunk of that was actually taken from Tyndale's Bible. He uh, is called by many the father of modern English due to his great influence on the English language itself. And you should know this is not the only time that a powerful leader or empire in history has tried very hard to keep people from having access to the Bible, which raises a couple questions. So what is it about this Bible that is open in your lap, more likely in your app, um, that makes it such a threat to people in powers, that, that most of the power, uh, some of the most powerful leaders in history were willing to torture, maim, and even kill just to keep it out of your hands? Why is it that almost all the great empires of history, from the Roman Empire to King Henry VIII to Bloody Mary's England to Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia, have all at least put a censorship ban on the Bible and its teachings, if not made it full-on illegal? And why is it that the ideological empires of both progressive left and the conservative right often take such issue with the Bible? Today, we, we don't live under an, an empirical regime, but these ideological empires either take great issue with the Bible and try to discount it entirely, or they try to twist and mold the Bible for their own gain. One side can say, well, these things are old and outdated. We've progressed past them, so they cut it out. And another part will take some out of context and twist it and say, this is why you should have total faith in us and our agenda, what we're trying to do. What is it about the Bible that is such a threat to those in power and the status quo, and yet so compelling to many over thousands of years? So every so often, we, we do a series that we call Following Jesus Together, where we look at covenant practices that we as missionary members of Midtown say, yes, these are our distinctive things that we will do to be the people of God together. So these are things like participation in gatherings. Congratulations, you guys here are participating in a gathering. Uh, generosity, being on mission, confession and repentance within community. These are the things as members that we've agreed to. And today we're gonna zoom in on the practice that's actually first on the list and it's abiding. Uh, here's what it says. Uh, if you can put up that abiding slide. Um, perfect. If, we'll, 
Let's just all read this together. If you guys are members, this will be like re-upping your member covenant. So this is great. Let's read it together. Abiding in Jesus connects us to him as the source of life as he produces fruit in us. Therefore, I commit to the consistent disciplines of meditating on God's word and prayer. God's word and prayer. And so today, we as your pastors thought it would be specifically helpful to look at the practice regarding God's word, the Bible. So uh, now, what is the Bible? It's always good to define terms, even if it seems silly or, or pointless. But uh, we got this definition from a guy named Dr. Tim Mackey. If you've ever heard of the Bible Project, he, he runs that. So this is what we teach in midtown class. We say that the Bible is a library of books written by God and man that tells a unified story that leads to Jesus. A library of books written by God and man that tells a unified story that leads to Jesus. So if you look in your table of contents, obviously you'll see the Bible is made up of a bunch of different books written by many different authors over hundreds of years. And throughout these books, God is acting on behalf of his people in the face of the powers of the day, in the face of kings and rulers and empires and pharaohs. And there are powers of the day responsible to try to snuff out God's people and their message, and they failed. And even though there are many authors over many years of time, it's important that we realize that the library is telling one story. It's telling one story. Uh, Dr. Tim Keller, a guy that we love to learn from all the time, he says it this way. He says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read it as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It's not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. Uh, If you've been to a movie theater in the past 14 years, probability says that you've seen a Marvel movie, right? So the idea, what they pulled off is amazing. They had all these different movies by all these different actors and all these different directors, but there was one guy in charge, and he was weaving together this whole story, and it all led to Thanos. I don't know where it's going now, but it all led to Thanos then. Uh, The Bible, in a much, 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 much better way, is a whole unified story. It's telling one story, and that story leads to Jesus. It's a library of books written by God and man that tells a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're, we're going to be camping on that unified story that leads to Jesus for the rest of our time. So uh, again, we'll be in Luke 4. Hopefully you're already there. If you're not there, you can turn there. If you want a physical Bible, they're at the end of your rows. You can ask a kind person to pass them down. But Luke 4, starting in verse 14, we'll read this again, and I'll, I'll kind of walk us through some, some things that we, as we get there. So it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan, and now he returns in the power of the Spirit. So he returns, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, so not where he was born, but where he grew up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. So an attendant would bring the rabbi this big scroll. He would unroll it, find the place where he needs to go. And then he, he read this from Isaiah. 
He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me or chosen me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Rabbis at the time would sit down while they were teaching. That sounds very nice. I would love to be sitting down while we were teaching, but here we are. And, uh, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Shortest sermon ever. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So Jesus reads a prophecy, a prophecy that's written in the form of a poem from hundreds of years before him, and he sees it as a promise that is fulfilled in and through him. He reads this poem, he sees it as a promise. Uh, that Greek word fulfilled is peplerotai. It means to, to, be, to bring to completion. It means a story or prophecy that's coming to pass. It's really used only a handful of times in the New Testament, but it comes from the root word plerao which means to complete. It's a picture of filling something up with water all the way to the brim. So Jesus reads these scriptures. He reads this story in Isaiah and sees himself as the peak. He sees himself as what was missing the whole time. The things, all the things were pointing to him. All the twists and the turns were all in God's providence pointing to Jesus. The story is about him. And Jesus gets at this in a couple different places. Matthew 5, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill Peple Rotai. He's the completion of those things. And then in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is with people. And uh, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole thing, the whole Bible, the whole story is about him, and he's inviting us, he's inviting you, he's inviting me into that story. He's inviting us into the story. Um, let, let's talk story for a little bit. Let's talk story. Uh, recent research has, has actually shown that our brains are hardwired for narrative and story. Our brains are actually hardwired for it. There's a neurobiologist named Mark Turner and, and he writes, this is his recent research. He says, story is the basic principle of how the human mind works. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as a set of stories. Narrative structure is essential not only for effective communication, but for thinking itself. When children ask to hear a story, it's not simply a biological craving for amusement or demand for attention, although all the parents in the room know that it is sometimes, but it arises out of a genuine human need to make sense of the disparate experience of our lives. And that need is addressed in storytelling. Through stories, we learn how to see patterns. We learn about cause and effect to discover the consequences of our choices, our sense of right and wrong, what is important or least valuable in life. All of these are shaped for us by the stories we hear and live by the stories we hear and live. Have you ever wanted to live in a story? Star Wars is the easy one for me. Like, I'd love to have a lightsaber. I feel like I'd cut a limb off or like use the force and just uh, get the little croy off the counter. Uh, it's big stuff, big stuff. I, I, uh, 
I hesitate to even tell you guys this this morning. I really do. I, I don't like to share this with people because I feel like people will see me differently. Um, but did you know that Toy Story was actually based on me? I'll prove it to you real quick. Exhibit A. Uh, the kid's name is Andy. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Andy is short for Andrew. My name. Okay. Exhibit B. Now the picture. Notice, that's me. Uh, notice, not only do I have the Woody doll, but I also have Woody and Buzz pajamas funded by Pixar themselves. Maybe. Uh, exhibit C. Do you remember the plot of Toy Story 3? It's okay. I remember it because it's my story. Uh, Andy is growing up. He's a senior in high school. He's headed off to college. Uh, does anyone know when Toy Story 3 came out? I'll tell you. It's 2010. Does anyone know when I graduated high school and was heading off to college? I'll answer it again, 2010. Exhibit D, where is Andy going to school? That's a real picture from the movie. I just put the red circle there to show you that I also went to Clemson. Toy Story was my story. It felt like it was my story, right? And that's true of all of us, just not necessarily with Pixar's greatest achievement. We all want to live in a story. We all want to live in a story because that's how our mind works. Uh, I was told recently of a cultural trend. It's called a main character moment. Is anyone familiar with a main character moment? I'm sure if you're on TikTok, maybe you know of a main character moment. Uh, I was researching an article about it in The New Yorker, and uh, here's what it said. It said, a main character moment describes any situation in which a person is making him or herself the center of attention, the crux of a particular narrative, as if the cameras were trained on her and her alone. Main character moments are those in which you feel ineffably in charge, as if the world were there for your personal satisfaction. Uh, Later in the artist, they were interviewing an actress and a TikTok creator, And she said, TikTok and social media has made it more attainable for you to write your own story. You're the main character. I'm Andy. You're Luke. You're Rose. You find your Jack, and there's room on the door for both of you, right? But here's the thing about stories and writing your own stories. Not all stories are true. Not all stories are true. And the story that you believe, the story that you trust in, will actually determine some of the person you become, for better or for worse. Uh, There's a pastor named Pete Hughes, and he puts it this way. The story you live in is the story you live out. The story you live in is the story you live out. Now, Now, we believe as a church that the Bible is a unified story that is leading us to Jesus, and it's the true story that we should live in. It's why that we sing the songs that we sing, a lot of them just cut straight scripture out and we sing it together. It's why we preach from the word every Sunday. It's why we stand for the reading of scripture. So I have a time in life group dedicated to read the scripture aloud together. But you know the preaching that you listen to more than us, certainly more than me, I don't preach that often. The world around you is preaching to you. It's telling you a story to live in far more than we get to. The world around you is always telling you a story, a story about what is true, what is right, how things work, how the 
you should interpret people around you, how you should respond to your circumstances. I mean, uh, there's literally a billboard less than a mile down Highway Run, one right here, and it says in all cap letters, find some joy. It's selling Carolina football tickets. But they're saying the quiet part out loud. If you give your time and your money and your allegiance to this, you can find some joy. I love college football as much as the next person, but find some joy. The, wor- the things the world tells you, the story the world tells you, they're hollow. They're rotten. It's actually more than that. They're actually pretty toxic and corrosive to your life. It's not reality, and it's not at all God's true story of the world. I need a better story. You need a better story. We need the Bible. We need Jesus' story. We need the story. It really is the story. See, the Bible, over time, as we read and submit to it, it works to tear down those lies that the world's story has tried to tell us. Whether it's about what makes us happy while we're here, the purpose of our family, the hope for our kids, and it gives us a truer story to live in. Uh, Jesus gets at this idea a little bit in John 8. He says to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The true story, the story that leads to Jesus gives us the things that set us free from the lies that we're imprisoned to. It frees us up to live in the reality of God's truth. We just spent a whole summer talking about the fruit of the spirit and how beautiful they are in contrast to the things the world tells us. One of the chief ways that Jesus is working this fruit of the Spirit out in our lives is by consistent time with him through prayer and through the word. Uh, John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why abiding is one of our covenant practices. That's why we made a website. We made a website, followingjesustogether.com. That's why there are reading plans there to help you read the Bible, training videos on ways that we can abide with Jesus. That's why we put it in life group time. It's because we think it matters. It's because the story you live in is the story you live out. And the world is telling you this story constantly over and over. And so we need to learn how to fight the world's story with the story, the story of reality. The world's story says that you know best. You ought to be in control of your life. You're responsible for all of it. Your life is in your hands. But Jesus' story, the true story, the story says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? And this gives us so much freedom because you're not big enough to control your own life. You're not strong enough to be in control. You can't see all the outcomes to know which decision to make, but he can and he sees you and cares for you and he could, you can trust him. 
The world story says that the only way to freedom is to win, to win the promotion, to be the best mom, to be seen as the most successful, to have influence over the people around you. The world says that if we hop on this politician's train, they'll take us to where we want to go, give, the, give us the life we want to live, and put our group on the throne. But the story says that God's, his is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is his. His is the kingdom and he is exalted as head above all and the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You're powerless in and of yourself apart from Christ. And the things that the world sells you, the power the world sells you is actually empty and enslaving you to another master. But by the spirit of God, you have actual influence over things that actually matter. It's not the growth of your followers or your 401k, it's the growth of the kingdom. The world story says that you need to do everything possible in order to be loved and approved of by those around you. You need that coworkers or that friends or that mom's group approval before anything else. You need your kids approval. The world says that you do not meet the standard of beauty and therefore you are less valuable. But these stories says that in Christ, God sees you and says, this is my child whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. God sees you and says, I like you and I love you. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have all the approval you will ever need. World story says that the best way to your happiness is by throwing off burdens and stress. If you're only to cut negative people out from your life, if only your kids were 18 and out of the house, if only I had the time and the money to go on that trip, if only my spouse were different in X, Y, and Z ways, if only I had a different spouse, if only I had more of this comfort in my life, then I would be happy. But the story says that you should take Jesus's yoke upon you for his yoke is easy and his burdens light. The chains of apathy and slothfulness and comparison, they weigh you down. They weigh you and the people around you down more than you realize. Your job is not just a paycheck. Jesus has called you into good work. Your parenting is not just keeping kids alive. Your neighbors aren't just soulless statues that are adorning your cul-de-sac. You have a truer purpose in this story, in the story. God's people over generations, like William Tyndale, have been willing to give their life to this story. And powerful people throughout history have tried to silence or seize control of this story, and they fail every time. This story offers true freedom for people who are physically in chains. It offers freedom money can't buy and that empires can't take away. This story offers power to those in the bottom rungs of society with no chance to climb. It offers worth and worthiness to the orphan and the widow, to the prostitute and the destitute. This story places you and I in the true story, in reality. Here you already have a king, so you can't be politically owned. A news channel or a news feed don't shape and mold you into a zealot used for their own cause. You already have a sure future, so people near or far to you can't use fear or anger against you in a way to make money off of you. You already have a core identity and a clear purpose, so you aren't buying the bill of goods that your Instagram is selling. 
This story gives you power over the terrorist role that your anxiety seems to occupy in your life, telling you when and how and why you should live. This story is an anchor when otherwise you'd be swept away by outward distractions and inner dialogue. Any revenge fantasies that you have in your mind that play out where you can get control over the person if you just told them off. But this story tells you that real strength is when you forgive and love your enemy. Real strength is when you forgive and love your enemy. We have the story, the true story available to us. And Jesus invites us to abide so that he can shape us. So the story that we live in becomes the story that we live out. That's why reading our Bibles and praying just can't be cliche. It's why it can't just be a list of uh, a thing on the list of things that we should do. It's not a ho-hum, read your Bible tomorrow morning kind of thing. No, we realize the lies that the world tells us are thorns around us, and they want to choke the life out of us. But Jesus has offered us a story that brings us freedom and life. We've made it a covenant practice. We've made so many resources. We made it a part of your life group because we know it matters. It matters for your life today and tomorrow morning, and especially 5, 10, 20 years from now. As we, as we kind of end our time this morning, I, I'd love to read from the um, book of Psalms. Psalms starts with this. This is Psalm 1. This is how the Psalms start. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. A life that yields fruit year after year, no matter the circumstance. A life's leaf that never withers, whose roots run deep and won't be blown away like so many around it. And it's the the story you live in. It's the story you, it becomes the story you live out. And Jesus is inviting us to abide in the story, the story that brings us freedom and life.